0: Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Hello, it's Jeff Barton with an absolute bumper edition of the Askell Leadership Podcast. And I hope you find lots in here that you find really interesting, uplifting and possibly inspiring. Enjoy.
1: Nico Savas, I'm the principal of West Suffolk College.
0: Uh, Now we're here at West Suffolk College. Uh, You and I go back a certain way. We worked together for a long time. Uh, West Suffolk College today is feeling a bit different. Tell us
1: what's happening here. Well, we have the International Festival of Learning East... And it is incredible, we, we started this festival as an idea, you and I, um, a few years back, where we thought, if festivals like that, where educationalists talk about education and bringing in evidence-based research that will influence how schools operate, why do we have to travel in order to have access to this? And we said, why don't we do one in Suffolk? And from that, it has pretty much. <laughs> well, the scale is incredible, isn't it? We got a thousand uh, delegates. Today. A thousand delegates today, teachers, and uh, I did see some teachers who have who flew in from Ireland and some who have who flew in from Holland. And they were very apologetic because they were late for a session, but they said, we're really sorry, we, we just flew in from Holland and we're late for the session.
0: And we've got all of these kind of national figures as well. And that's sending out an incredible message, isn't it? That over in the east of England, where it's easy for us to be misunderstood and forgotten.
1: It, we, do, we do bold things absolutely because they the east of England for it, it, it comes back to what we were saying together some time ago where we said if we want to make a change we need to be the change and by asking all these people which they came <laughs> and, and we seem quite surprised that uh, all these national figures international figures have arrived here in Suffolk in uh, in a festival celebrating education, celebrating taste, and celebrating teaching and the teachers, yeah, well you should feel very proud. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.
2: I'm Amroz, editor of TES. And uh,
0: just tell us what you've been doing here at the uh, International Festival of Learning. Oh, that? the internet, and there,
2: there was quite a lot of <laughs> international was, was. talk. So I was chairing a debate on creativity in education, a very lively debate, um, and we were talking about. Um, uh, other countries but mainly shanghai um and in a comparison with the uk
0: well, how do you judge the, the the mood of where we are in terms of creativity both in terms of what the panelists were saying and also uh, the questions
2: I think there's a a mood of great frustration. People definitely want to have more creativity in schools, but it's quite hard to see how you squeeze it in, and it is about trying to squeeze it in in between all the accountability pressures that schools have on them.
0: You've been editor at the TS for how long now?
2: Nearly five years. Yeah, nearly five years. So uh,
0: what, what are you most proud of in that time?
2: Um being creative actually and bringing um, a different way of thinking um, in the TES and also different ways of doing things um, and just probably thinking more in terms of what the teachers want and getting the voice of teachers uh, far more prominent. And I shouldn't say this about my staff, but actually lowering the voice of journalists because it is a publication and a website meant for teachers and they should be prominent within it.
3: And, Ros, thank you, and thanks for sponsoring this event today. My pleasure. <laughs> my name's Darren Henley. I'm the Chief Executive of Arts Council England. Give us a flavour of what Arts Council
0: England's remit is.
3: So our job is to champion, develop and invest in great art and culture for absolutely everybody's life, wherever they are across England.
0: Somebody said uh, in, in a question that they felt that the arts was terribly elitist. I mean, from your point of view, uh, I can
3: understand why people might say that. From your point of view, do you see signs of it being less elitist? Yeah, well, we're really, really passionate about taking great arts and great cultural activities into everybody's life, whatever their background, whatever journey they've had in their own lives. We believe that actually arts and culture in your life can make your life better, it can make you feel better, your well-being improves, your educational attainment improves, the places you live improve. So we want to make sure it's not just the one group of people who are sitting in an elite position it's for absolutely everybody whoever they are wherever they are across the country
0: and how does the arts council connect with schools
3: and colleges so on a number of levels uh, we connect it's uh, it's very very important as we have five goals and one of those goals is about creating the the audiences and the practitioners of tomorrow so i'm absolutely passionate about the role that teachers and schools play in giving every young person an opportunity to experience arts and culture and to learn about arts and culture and we really value those cultural education subjects like music and dance and drama and art and design and making those available to absolutely everybody in every school is really important. And finally, you've got a book coming out about creativity. What what do you say in that book? So, yeah, I've got a book coming out uh, at the end of June called Creativity, Why It Matters. And in that book, I make the case for creativity and how it drives forward our economy, creativity and how it improves our communities, uh, our own innate creativity in everybody's lives and also creativity and the importance it has in the education system as well.
0: Well, welcome to Suffolk's having you here, where I think I'm right in saying that the number one component in the economy is the energy industry and the number two
3: is creative industries. Well, let's see. We can keep going and we may become one, number one <laughs> so one a day. So, table to win. Darren Henley, thank you. Thank you.
4: Sonia Blandford, I'm CEO of Achievement for All. Tell us what Achievement for All is. So, Achievement for All is a programme that goes into schools to encourage every single child, whether they're vulnerable disadvantage disadvantaged, um, whether they're gifted and talented, to achieve. But by focusing on four elements, which is focusing on the teachers in terms of expanding their innovation, their creativity and giving them really the the framework that they're able to to, to deliver in that way by focusing on leadership, by looking at vision commitment, collaboration and communication how leadership can actually show that inclusion can be real in schools and I know that's something you're very keen on. So leadership and inclusion come together by focusing on uh, parents and carers. So we have worked with hundreds of thousands of parents and carers who are the most vulnerable and disadvantaged themselves, bringing them into the schools, working with teachers helping to train teachers to work in a way that's structured, in engaging with parents and carers that's mutual it's the mutuality so not understanding all parents and categorizing all parents in one way that is whether they're working class middle class whether they're disadvantaged or vulnerable but actually looking and seeing what they can bring for their children and how we can share common goals as educators and how we can work together and then finally the fourth strand is working with um, wider outcomes so engaging every child and providing every child an opportunity whether that be sport whether that be music whether that be dance but not taking no for an answer not 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 saying to the child, actually, we've given you this opportunity if you can't be bothered, but taking the stuff to the child, bringing the child to the opportunity. So it may take two years to get the child to participate, but absolutely ensuring that that happened. So I can, I do, I have, I am. Other people might have other phrases that fit, but that as a, as a model, you know, if you look at a child from two-year-old through to 24-year-old, that's what they need. They need to have inner strength to be able to succeed.
0: I was very struck that you were doing something different. You weren't just talking about inclusion, but the language you were using about inclusion which was kind of warning us about stereotyping and assuming that these are parents who aren't going to be as interested in their children as others and so on. The parent bit, in secondary particularly, is the hardest bit to get to, in my experience. So what, what kind of thoughts have you got around
4: that? Yeah, I, mean, I think the, the, the difficulty is that um, for, for good or ill, uh, based on our own experiences, we look at some parents and we make judgments. You know, It might be the mum mum's at the gate and the one's in the hoodie, it might be the mum that's always late for school, it might be the child that's having to, to care for the mum, or it might be the dad that's you know, on to his fifth or sixth job. Actually, they all want the best for their children. They may not have had the experience themselves, but it's for us as teachers, as educators, to work in partnership in that mutuality, to share, to have that, that, those structured conversations in order to be able to have those common goals where every parent can support their child at home. Because the biggest person in a child's life is their mum or their dad or both. And we need to work on that, we need to work on that, and that makes a huge, huge difference in terms of outcomes. It makes a huge difference to the child, but ultimately it makes a huge difference to the families as well.
0: Mm, and that last question, which is about... Um the curriculum which of course is voguish at the moment everybody's talking about the yeah, curriculum um what, what are you saying in terms of curriculum that the child from the disadvantaged background needs help in accessing exactly the same curriculum that any other child would do or that that curriculum needs to be tailored to the needs of that child
4: so i think in in the majority of cases the curriculum at the moment is uh too narrow I think what we need to do is, is have that creativity and innovation. I don't mean to say that something that is so far removed from core knowledge. So I'm a real advocate for core knowledge in terms of English, maths, and science, um, and also the arts. Um, I myself am a music teacher. And I really think that the arts actually develops that inner strength I was talking about earlier. Mm. It really builds that. But also in terms of sport and other, other activities that happen both in the curriculum and, and, and extracurricular. I think what's happening at the, currently is that there is a vision for the curriculum which is going to exclude and if we don't watch what's happening then we could end up in a situation where the gap which we're all trying to close is
0: actually going to get bigger. Professor Sonia Blanford, thank you very much. Well, thank you. I'm John Westburnham. <laughs> Tell us <laughs> who the legend that John Westburnham actually is, <laughs> what you do. I
5: work now as an, as an independent researcher, writer, consultant and general. i hired help, in it, hopefully for school leaders.
0: And through your writing and through your speaking, you've helped us to do a lot of thinking in terms of what the future of learning should look like.
5: Give us your reflections on where
0: where we are now in terms of English education.
5: I think we're very mixed, and that's the worry. That there are some schools that are really beginning to grasp issues of learning, successful learning for every pupil, and there are others that are still working by the the whole notion of a, a homogeneous cohort and the fallacy that you can teach a class, you can't. You can only help the individuals in the class learn. That's a huge... A tension and a challenge the evidence is pretty compelling the change in mindset is just enormous
0: we had a conversation last night and i was talking about the fact that uh, we're seeing uh, What sometimes feels like heavy layers of management in schools, and I was saying that actually, if we could recruit and retain lots of high-quality teachers, you'd need less management in a sense. And you made the comment that's what Finland does, and Finland kind of kick-started everything by having a commission, didn't they, where they said what does education need to look like? How how would that work?
5: I think um, certainly the Cambridge Review did an enormous amount for primary education, and it's um, it's really important to value it and treasure it and bring it back to life as often as possible. Um, I think that we need to develop a situation where we're able to explore a, a holistic view of education, literally from birth to mortgage and, and beyond, and to really try and identify what we want as a society. because. As we discussed yesterday, one of the tensions we have is the incredible pluralism yes. that we have, which on the one hand is something to value and to be rich, but when it works against a significant proportion of children, perhaps as many as 30% of children,
0: then it can't be right. Education, as we both know, goes in peaks and troughs. And uh, some, some people would say at the moment the fragmentation in the system is making things very, very difficult. What, what finally, do you think we need to do to start heading back to the peak
5: I think we need to simply have more conversations, like we've had this morning, like we're having all day today, and to get teachers confident in talking about the issues around values, issues around purpose, issues around the nature of the learning process and how that relates to teaching. So almost developing um, a literacy, a fluency, using a rich vocabulary around values and purpose which learning is at the heart and where many teachers now really are vulnerable and often lacking confidence. We need to start those conversations going on in school and we need also to have much more um, engagement with heads having time to think. And
0: I'm writing, I said that was the last question. Here is the last question. I'm writing thinking that essentially it's not the government that's going to do this, it's not no. Ofsted. This is about us, isn't it? It's
5: about us, and it's about where I think that the professional associations who have changed so much in the past 10 years and have really now become very much led by their, the community's leaders, the education community's leaders, where there is, of course, a need for the legalistic side of trade union work. There's a very much a need for the, um, the policy engagement, but there's also a need to say, actually, we need to find a better way for our members to live. You know, and, and I passionately believe that if we could get more thinking around learning, teachers' lives would be improved almost immediately. It's not a matter of a, a additional; it's a matter of instead of the current organisational bureaucracy.
0: Let's do that. Professor John Westburn, thank you. Thank
5: you,
6: <laughs> I'm Vicky Weston. I'm Director of Programme Management at Pearson. And I'm Karen George. I'm an educational consultant, previously a head teacher for the last 20 years.
0: And, uh, well, first of all, thanks to Pearson for sponsoring this, this great event. So give <laughs> no us problem. a flavour of uh, what you've been saying this morning.
7: Um, so we've done a piece of research which we call the future of skills employment in 2030. And what this is, is a big piece of research we commissioned last year in partnership with Nesta and the Oxford Martin School to uh, use the best of human expertise and machine learning to be able to identify not just the jobs that would be in demand in the future, but also the skills that we should be educating and helping develop students for today to be able to prepare them for a workforce of 2030.
0: So what does that look like in, in practice? Because Because education is one of those examples where... As more IT has been added, it's actually added to workload rather than taken yeah. away, but you're suggesting something new, I think.
7: Um, yeah, I think it's a combination of things. So the first thing is that what our research is showing is that, um, and I think this is an intuition that people have had in education for a long time, is that it's not about knowledge or skills, it's about the combination of the both. And you need both of those things to be able to be able to succeed in, in jobs in the future. But the skills that we're really seeing like rising to the top of the ones that we think are most going to be associated with jobs that will be in demand in the future are what we refer to as like uniquely human skills. So while technology in the classroom and in the world of work will be endlessly useful in helping us make incredible progress in you know, productivity and efficiencies, what we actually think is that once you develop those uniquely human skills, you can actually leverage the best of what a machine is able to do and the best of what a human is able to do and do something more incredible together. And that's really what the uh, Problem Solvers publication that Corinne has been talking about this morning um, has been uh, kind of designed to address, is Charlie took this idea of you know what what is it that a human can uniquely do and how can we put that on top of what a machine can help a person do in order to them for them to be able
6: to achieve you know bigger and better and greater things
0: excellent so give us a flavor of what you were, because you were demonstrating some of that for
6: okay us. so what we need to do is what teachers need to focus on workload is a, i just want to ask a question on workload it's a huge one so we need to have pieces that are um, we have to concentrate on our design in lessons and we have to have pieces that are more valuable that teach the life skills that we want rather than trying Trying to do massive coverage of everything. And we need to give students examples of what great work looks like from experts in the field, but from their own peers as well. So that will help them with the standards, that's the first thing. And when we need to focus on our design and learning, we really need to concentrate on that part rather than systems and procedures, because that's what's happening in schools. We're not focused on the design and learning and looking at those 21st century skills. Now, Charles Ledbetter talks about um, those skills being wrapped up in four elements for dynamic learning. And what he saw when he went around the schools around the world were that those schools that were really focused on active learning, that were focused on um, students having originality, problem-solving skills, was that there were four key elements. And they were looking at knowledge, personal, social, and agency. The fact that we come to school to make, to contribute, to do, and, and that's what we want to do in the world. And so it's really important that teachers focus down on the design and spend more time, rather than on systems and procedures, on designing learning tasks that are rigorous, relevant, and motivating. So
0: there's something really reassuring isn't there about the fact that this isn't taking away from being human, it's actually helping teachers to use their skills that the robots can't do more.
6: Yes and that's what we want them to do, we want to focus them on learning design and get them to use their creativity to put the power back in hands of the students. If they do that and they have problem solving and collaborative uh, projects and real project based learning then we're going to work across boundaries of knowledge and we're going to get better quality. So you know we need to shed those traditional practices that's stunting our growth and really look at what we're doing and redesign it. Smaller bits of work, higher value, better quality is what we need. Thank you
8: both very much. My name's Frank Caulfield. I'm an Emeritus Professor of
0: Education at the Institute of Education in London. And you've written a book, uh, Frank, about Ofsted, which is called Ofsted, Can the Leopard Change Its Spots, if I remember correctly. Give us a flavour of what you're saying in the book. Well, I set out, really about a year ago, to
8: say... What would a new model of Ofsted look like if we started with educational principles? And I began looking at the literature on Ofsted, and I came to the conclusion, not quickly, but I looked at it in some detail, there are some advantages in inspection and there are some disadvantages. I came to the conclusion that Ofsted was doing more harm than good. So I thought we need to start from scratch again. So I started thinking of educational principles on which I could base a new model. Just give us a flavour of some of those principles, if you would. Well, the first one is education as growth, based on the work of John Dewey, who basically gives the question at the end of schooling, are our young people able to learn more? Are they lifelong learners? Do they understand how to learn? Do they know their strengths and weaknesses and their enthusiasms? Have they picked up enthusiasms for things during their school periods? And will they be able to cope with life in the latter half of the 20th century, 21st century? That's that's my number one principle. Um, another one would be appreciative inquiry, by which I mean Any organisation, whether it's a school or a firm, appreciative inquiry says, comes in and you say to people, what are you best at? What is the positive core of the school? What are you doing when you are at your really your very best? Tell us about your strengths and we will begin there. We'll look at that first. Now, we may pick up that you've got weaknesses, but we will try and work and expand your strengths so that everyone in the school has got the strengths. You're learning from each other and then we'll come, come and cope with the weaknesses. But those, that approach is much more positive than coming in and trying to find fault, trying to find
0: weaknesses right from the very beginning. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting because you don't start from the point of view, uh, let's not have inspection. You, you no. believe it is important to have inspection. Why, why, what, I mean, there are some countries which don't have it. Finland is one. I think Australia might be another. Yes. Um, what, what is it that uh, the, the inspection does that, that makes it important for parents?
8: Well, I have two children. I'd want want to know what kind of a school in the area and what school I should send them to. But I don't think performance indicators alone provide me with the kind of information I want. I want to know, is this an exam factory or is it a learning community that I'm sending my children to? Now, the present system only gives you a league table and the the results and examinations I'd want to know what kind of a community is this are the teachers learning will they encourage my kids to learn will they end up with enthusiasms? will they end up loving their subjects rather than happen to my two kids they learnt French and German at school neither of them can speak
0: it and both of them hate it now that's not an education Uh, Last question. You're running a conference tomorrow. You travel down here to London from Durham today. Uh, Give us a flavour of what's going to be happening at the conference. Well, I've got a number of
8: speakers, including myself, saying here are alternatives to the present system, We've got someone from Ofsted, Sean Halford, the national director, at the end of the day saying what of those ideas he thinks Ofsted could run with. And then in coming days, I will write a report on the major recommendations that come out of that. I will send it to the 100 plus participants coming to the conference to get them to comment on it, improve those recommendations, and then I'll send them to Ofsted. With the main idea, I'm going to try and pressurize
0: Ofsted to change in educational ways. Uh, I said that was the last question. This is the last question. The title of your book, uh, Can Ofsted Change Its Spots? What's your instinct? Can it? I wouldn't be running this conference tomorrow. I wouldn't have written the book, but for two
8: things. Ofsted is is producing started work on a new framework of inspection to come out in September 2019. I've met staff from Ofsted, and they say they're reasonably open to new ideas. Second, we have a new Chief HMI, Amanda Spielman, and the tone and the contents of her speeches have been more open to new ideas than in previous years. So I think the door is slightly open. I want to try and put my foot in it
9: and open it even wider. Frank Coppola, thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Matt Hood and I'm the director at the Institute for Teaching. Uh, and the Institute uh, for Teaching, what, what is that? Um, so we're a specialist graduate school for teachers um, and we're trying to do one thing really and that's to help teachers to keep getting better.
0: Now you were talking to me before about this and I, I, on behalf of school leaders I want them to listen to what you were saying which is about how we sequence education for those people who are training teachers. Can you, just explore
9: that for me. Yeah, so... Um, I come at this kind of question about teaching teachers with bags of humility. Because my bit of the system, the teacher-educated bit of the system, I think has got tons to learn from how great schools think about teaching their pupils. And So if you get into any school, a great school, um, they're thinking really hard about three questions. They're thinking really hard about their curriculum, so what the pupils need to know and be able to do and in what order. They're thinking really hard about assessment, so how do they know if the pupils have learned that stuff. And they're thinking really hard about instructions, how are the teachers teaching that content. And around that, they're also thinking really hard about who they've got teaching those teachers. And I think that graduate schools for teachers, places where teachers go to learn, schools for teachers need to care at least as much about those questions as those great schools do so what the teachers need to know and be able to do and in what order um i just think we're way behind schools in thinking about this question right how do we sequence learning over a long period of time five six seven eight years what should teachers be learning about in their third or fourth or fifth year in the profession at the moment we've got a curriculum for our first year in some places it stretches into the second year but beyond that like we're just very unclear about this question in a way that we just wouldn't tolerate for our own pupils. Um, when it comes to instruction, you know, too often we group all the teachers together in a room in a twilight session on a Thursday evening when they're knackered. Um, we wouldn't do that with pupils. We think in sophisticated and interesting ways about what method of instruction is appropriate for which bit of content. And then on assessment, I think we've made some really great progress as a profession on this question as we've moved away from graded lesson observations as we've moved away from pinning pupil data to individual teachers but we've still got loads more work to do to try and understand in a much more sophisticated way whether teachers know and are able to do the things that we think they need to know and be able to do And the final bit of the puzzle this is where it starts to get a bit meta is we need to think much harder about teacher educators so the people who teach teachers how to teach. we would all, I think, rightly, rile against the idea that you can be a great rocket scientist and wander into a classroom and become a physics teacher, or at least certainly I would. And if anyone wants to go head to head on that, I'm very happy to. Very happy I'm You're available. Um, but we don't stop and pause in the same way when we ask the physics teacher to become a teacher of physics teachers. We don't structure or sequence training and development for those individuals so that they can become aware of what it is they do as a teacher, break it down into its constituent parts. sequence it teach it and assess it in the same way that we would expect them to do for their pupils. So um, uh, there's great strides being made right across the teacher education bit of our system Um, and I think there can be more made if we care at least as much about those questions we put at least as much effort into the teaching of our teachers as they put into the teaching of their pupils like that's just
0: the key. L- last question before you've got to go and that is so let's just look at that in practice so when you are training teachers what do they do initially and what do they do next because there's a kind of technician moving to more experience i think
9: yeah so um, We we think that learning is largely just learning, right? And the thing that matters um, when you're choosing methods of instruction is the level of proficiency of the individual you're working with at that point. So I'm not interested as much about whether you are 5 or 55. I'm not interested whether you've been teaching for a year or teaching at 10 years. What I'm interested in is how much do you know and how effectively are you able to do a particular thing And if that's really effectively and you're trying to get better at it, more open discovery type approaches we think are going to be more effective. If that's, I'm new to this, I'm not very effective, more direct uh, guided learning, direct instruction, deliberate practice is likely to yield better results. So my view is for new teachers who are almost always novice, um, we need to lean much more heavily on direct instruction, and deliberate practice than we do discovery approaches for more experienced teachers we need to lean much more heavily on discovery learning than we do direct instruction um, again we know this for pupils right when they're a total novice at something we explain things clearly we set up uh, models for them to copy uh, and then we get them to practice um as they get more proficient we set more open-ended tasks for them to figure their way through i think with teachers sometimes because everybody's an adult we jump too quickly to the discovery approach, and the thing that matters isn't whether you're an adult or not. The thing that matters is how proficient you are in a particular domain, and we should choose the method of instruction to match your level of proficiency, not to match how old you are or how experienced you are. And so, right
0: at the start, your trainee teachers will be, you'll, you'll be looking at their organisation
9: skills and classroom management, is that right? So, uh, yeah, I think for new teachers, yeah, that's that's where um, we start out, so... Um, things really basic things like how organized you are how strong you uh, how well you're able to use your voice to project very tone and pitch um how good you are at really basic classroom management routines um are really crucially important we teach them pretty explicitly and we get the individuals to practice both in an artificial sense and then when they're uh performing in classrooms live in classrooms um, Uh, We then move on to um, other more guided approaches around co-planning and co-facilitation, co-delivery before we eventually release the reins. Um, uh, Again, we think that sequencing and that move is uh, from one to the other as people progress um, is what actually we should think more about and less about whether this method or that method is right. The method depends on the proficiency. Mm. Mahud, thank you. Thank you very much.
10: Emma Hardy, the MP for Hall Western and Uh, And
0: Emma, we're here in the... uh... Houses of Parliament. What have we been doing?
10: We've been talking about the importance of oracy and why does it matter, why should it be explicitly taught in all of our schools. So we've been listening to some incredibly articulate young people who absolutely blew me away with the speeches they gave. From as young as I think the youngest was eight years old, all the way up to sort of you know older young people talking about how oracy gave them confidence and helped them find their voice. To young people who have autism talking about the importance of oracy in communication. We've also had so many experts in this room from a multitude of different organisations talking about why Oracy matters and why it needs to have a greater emphasis in our schools.
0: And uh, where does your interest in this come from? Why, why, Why you and Oracy?
10: Wow. well... I suppose i was a primary teacher for 11 years and then i was involved in the organization northern rocks i'm passionate about education and i'm now on the education select committee and i just feel like it's something that matters so much i mean we have a crisis growing in children's mental health we've been doing inquiries into alternative provision and the number of young people that we meet there who have communication problems is staggering and you start thinking well surely children should be taught explicitly taught these skills from a from a younger age all the way all the way through, and and, yeah. and and I think even in this place here, you look around at how diverse it is. You know, the, the different MPs that there are, and how many still come from the public school backgrounds that are still taught obviously to, still taught public speaking, and how many people are not. And I just believe that everybody, you know, it's that everyone is equally valued, everyone is equally important. Everybody should be encouraged to find their own voice.
0: And la- last question: So you're there on the select committee, quite oh, right. so. What would you say in response to a school leader who says, "Well, you know, I, I kind of hear the"? Rest. About it, I see why it's important, but we haven't got time either in the primary curriculum or the secondary curriculum to be able to put something else in like oracy.
10: I think that's an incredibly valid comment, and, and one thing I was just talking about there, which, which I think would be a, a great solution to it, would be to actually remove the need to evidence every single thing that teachers do. I mean, for example, if you're doing about book reviews in your classroom, why can't the children present what they found out orally? If you're doing English literature about characters, why can they not present that orally? Why is there this fear culture in schools that means that teachers have to make children write everything and then teachers have to write everything in response to it? If we actually said no, we don't need to evidence everything, oral communication matters as well, this is equally valid as having something written in a book. I think not only would it transform the way teachers uh, teach, but also, as you said, it would reduce their workload as well.
0: The
11: MP, thank you. My name is Glyn Hambling. I'm CEO of Unity Education Trust. That's a, a group of schools, two infant and nurseries, two junior schools, a high school and a
0: sixth form all based in mid Norfolk. Uh, so you're there in a, a pretty rural context, which means, you, I'm, I presume, you've got some fairly smallish schools there. Absolutely. We have, uh,
11: obviously, rurality as is a, is a key issue, and we have schools of, you know, 59 children. Uh, and the key goal of the Trust is about maintaining small schools in their community, which is uh, a very, very difficult thing to achieve, but it's something that we want the community to own and, and continue
0: to have and maintain. And you use the word community there. I have known you, of course, as you've been a head teacher working with the community there in North Norfolk. And now you've stepped into a different role, and it would just be interesting for people who perhaps are heads and are thinking, should I become an executive head or a CEO, what's that journey been like for you? I think the, the development is about
11: understanding the nature of leadership and what you want to free up for colleagues to enable them to focus on teaching and learning and doing what's quality. Uh, and so whilst we spend lots and lots of time on, on the structures and the resources for developing maths, we also need to remember the importance between micro and macro management and leadership uh, and what really matters for, for heads and what really matters for teachers and what brings about sustained school improvement. Because um, it's a journey that that people talk about, and and it's all about timing.
0: And you made a point to me a minute ago that you see part of your job as kind of freeing up the heads of the schools to be able to focus on the things that matter. Just talk me through that.
11: I think the ultimate job that, that I've got at present is this notion of decluttering. By centralising key elements and allowing heads to focus their time and their, their energies on teaching and learning, on monitoring, on quality developments, on the well-being of staff is the overall goal and you know, we have got some way to go down that journey. Um, But it's about taking opportunities as and when they come, and it's about making sure that we don't reinvent the wheel, and one of the key aspects is, how are we going to go to the next stage of brokering, which is working with other mats to get benefit, rather than just seeing ourselves as a mat on
0: our own. Ben Hamling, thank you very much. Thank you.
12: I'm Leora Craddis, I'm Chief Executive
0: of FASNA. So tell us uh, what FASNA is and what it does.
12: Uh, FASNA is the Freedom and Autonomy for Schools National Association. Which
0: trips off the tongue, doesn't it?
12: Trips off the tongue, (laughs) indeed it does. Uh, It's a um, membership organisation for largely for uh, academies and multi-academy trusts but we do have other schools in membership including local authority maintained schools and foundation trusts.
0: So a membership organisation that means that uh, MATS have chosen to join and be part of that so what what are they getting? Why would they do
12: that? We're about to reshape VASMA to become the sector body or if you like the trade body uh, for the emerging landscape of legally autonomous schools, so what um, what trusts will get is uh, an organisation that speaks, that stands up for the trust, that speaks for the trust, uh, and that joins up leadership across executive, financial, and governance leaders.
0: Now, you, in various incarnations through your careers, you've been director of policy with the I'll come back to that in a second. You worked local authority at top top level the direction of travel has been away from local authorities into multi-academy trusts into system leadership and you very much wrote a lot about that but also helped define that in that groundbreaking document the blueprint that Askell published a lot of people coming to me saying it all feels splintered and fragmented they feel gloomy pessimistic about it as someone who's managed to kind of survey the system how does it feel from where you are
12: uh, I, th- I, th- I think we are at uh, a midpoint um, in in a system that is only half reformed. Um, so I think it is up to the profession now to determine what we want that endpoint to look like, and then for us to collectively pursue that endpoint. I don't I don't think um, that government will do that, and nor do I think the government necessarily should do that. I think it's it's very much up to us, to our own agency, to define where we think the system is heading. I I believe the system is heading towards uh, groups of schools, structurally integrated groups of schools, which are educationally and financially sustainable.
0: And that notion of it, it's up to us, which I've I've been saying as well, the intangible bit is not not so much who is us, but how does us connect, if you see what I mean. And so are you seeing that being done through a a whole range of different organisations, or is it ultimately the the mats which are going to be able to bring together
1: that voice?
12: No, mats are dispersed with no way of um, making policy or indeed shoring up the freedoms that we fought for through the academies movement. Uh, so MATs need to be a part of something larger than themselves, which is the organization that I'm trying to create. But I won't do this, my organization won't do this uh, on, on its own. What we need is a very broad coalition of leadership organizations uh, to be working together to define that endpoint.
0: Overall, what you're saying, given that you define us as being halfway through a semi-reformed system, is that this is what it was going to be like, in a, in a sense, that we were, we were all going to be finding our way through. Uh, but we should feel fairly, op- fairly optimistic that we can we can do this. Is I right?
12: think so. So I'm doing a PhD in, uh, uh, with the Institute of Education at the moment, and um, uh, I'm proposing um, that the education system in, in, in England has the features of a complex adaptive system. Now, complex adaptive systems, when you're in them, feel chaotic. Um, and there are really three things that you, that, that, that you need for the system to take the next step in the complex adaptive system. One is agency, when the agents in the system start to behave in particular, in particular ways. Two is a sense of emergence, so what is the system that you're emerging uh, into. And uh, thirdly is a sense of collective efficacy. And, and
13: those, are, those are the things, I think, as leadership organisations, we should be trying to foster. Uh, my name is Yinka Elwala. I'm a director at Eagle Solution Services. Tell us what you do. Yes. We help schools um, to think about food um, as part of the learning process. So to think about food not as um, you know something that happens at lunchtime done by somebody else, but actually an integral and powerful resource uh, to improve learning, to improve well-being and to improve um, the education experience of children.
0: Now, a lot of food provision is essentially outsourced yes. in a way. So how, how do you kind of get into that? How, how do you work with school leaders and whoever is providing the food to actually make an impact?
13: So we uh, work in a number of ways. One of the key ways that we work is we actually say to school leaders, um, it's it's often likely that if you took control of the catering service yourself and don't get me wrong I know you're not a caterer but if you took control of that service you would be able to get what we call a better deal so the financial would be better but also a better meal um, by um, having control over the menu by being able to be responsive to your school community's needs and to enable you to have, to really think about how school can be responsive to what's happening say on the curriculum or, or community matters or those kinds of things so we help schools um, who want to actually take control of the service we help we give them that catering expertise in order to help them to do that so we look at the you know contracts we look at recruitment we look at the nutrition aspects of things we look at the finances we give head teachers and school leaders the confidence to be able to take control of that themselves for schools that don't necessarily have the capacity to do that or don't necessarily want to do that we're able to say well okay you you know the food bit can be outsourced but the lunchtime itself is a really powerful. Really important part of school and and you know certainly in the mind of children when the children's food trusted did um, their survey a, a long time ago it was lunchtime that was paramount in the children's minds in terms of how they how they think about school as a whole so let's think you know what is your lunchtime like how how can you use lunchtime to improve on um, you know learning outcomes how can you use it to improve on personal development and behavior um and so there are a number of different resources and ways that we help schools to to really tackle the lunchtime culture to really think about reflecting the the whole school ethos in the lunchtime provision. Um, and thinking about how to make use of lunchtime and food and nutrition as a as an integral part of, of the amazingness that's happening in this I,
0: I love that because a decision we made very early on when i was uh, head was we're going to run the catering ourselves and none of us has ever run a catering business but you get the right people to do it but what we saw was that it wasn't about food it was about ethos it was yes. about culture and values and all that kind of thing absolutely it's so one other thing you said to me a minute ago i just want to talk about because it's bleak and that is hunger
13: yeah
0: we're seeing more Children coming to school hungry, aren't
13: they? Absolutely. It's a really—it boggles my brain that we are. You know, we're a first-world country. We're one of the richest economies on the planet, and yet every day thousands of children are coming to school without having had a decent meal. Not only in the morning, but perhaps the night before. Um, you know, uh, this is not a political statement. You know, I'm not. I'm not here to talk about the policies of the government. What I am concerned about is children who, for whom those five. You know, lunchtime meals are the hot meals they get they are the decent meals they get in the day and it's not due to you know the 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 feckless parent narrative it's parents who are working so hard and just struggling to make ends meet it's it's not children with you know the the latest trainers and playstations as, as the media would often have you believe it's parents who work two three four jobs just to try and keep body and soul together and so and the fact is that the you know Maslow you know we talk about the hierarchy of needs and but you know you can't teach a hungry child you just can't and you know we we are very fortunate as I I said in this country to be we have an abundance of resources so what are we doing how is it that we're allowing children to come to school hungry every day and so a lot of the work that we did in on the holiday hunger task force as part of the school food APPG was working to make sure that there were frameworks for holiday hunger but now what we as an organization are thinking about is how to make um, frameworks and resources to tackle everyday hunger, because hunger is now an everyday issue, it's not just, it's not just holidays anymore.
0: Well look, thanks for talking about your work, but in particular, thank you for putting that issue so forcibly to Not
13: us. at all. I you know, anything you could. thank you so much for including it in your podcast because anything that shines a light on just how challenging it is and, and things that can be done, you know, there are resources out there, organizations like ours, you know, my amazing friend Lindsay Graham, who's leading the work, um, you know, had led the work for the, the task force. But as I said, hunger is an everyday issue, and the fact is that you know education is such a powerful tool. The, the reason why I'm passionate about education education because it literally changes the trajectory of people's lives Um, but food even more so and as i said how how are we leveling the playing field when half of the half the class is hungry and half isn't so yeah i'm just so grateful to you jeff i really appreciate it
14: thank you i am sam friedman i'm an executive director at teach first responsible for our teach training program Um, and moving in june to become chief executive of our education partnerships group Uh, which which supports governments in the developing world uh, to reform their education systems.
0: Okay, well, we're going to come to that in a second. Just give us a a reflection on Teach First and how that's developed uh, over the past few years.
14: Yeah, it's been a great time to be at Teach First. I think when I joined, we were known as a kind of teacher recruiter, and that's what we'd been really good at, um, and we sort of outsourced all of our teacher training. Over the five years I've been at Teach First, we've really developed our own capacity in teacher training and really thought uh, long and hard about the evidence base for what good teacher training looks like. And, And with our... Our university partners we've put together uh, what we launched this year which I think is a really really um, excellent teacher training programme um, which I hope um, is, a, is, a, is a sort of guide for the rest of the system um, and uh, it's been the highlight of my time there definitely
0: and, and, and you know you and I have just been doing a session there where I was quoting Matt Hood who I spoke to yeah. last week who's probably on the same podcast and he was talking about having this very clear sense of what are the building blocks of someone's professional development you were kind of saying that there you? a really clear sense of what teachers need
14: Exactly, and I think, so when I, when I started researching this issue, I found this was a really tedious debate between a bunch of people saying, it's all too theoretical, they should just be in the classroom teaching, and other people saying, oh, if you do that, they'll just be technicians, and they need to be sort of learning all of this theory. And actually, well, of course, they need both, um, but, but it's the order in which you do it that, that really makes a difference. And, 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 what, and our model now really focuses on, on the sort of practical techniques first up, the, the um, classroom management, the planning, the assessment that you need um, just to be able to manage in a class and then as teachers get more used to teaching building up their theoretical knowledge but doing it in a way that syncs with their classroom practice so that they understand how to use it rather than just being a, a load of stuff that they hear in a lecture theatre and then forget about um, and I'm and I'm really and I think by the end of that two years uh, that our programme runs for, they should be really reflective practitioners but they've had that, that sort of technical knowledge right at the start to get them going
0: So, tell us a bit about your new role, what are you going to be doing in that?
14: Yes, so I'm going to be moving in June, and it's a very different kind of role, working in in developing world countries like Uganda, Ghana, um, and Ivory Coast, um, and working closely with their governments to think about how they uh, uh, improve education systems, which are obviously very different to the kind that we have in in the UK, um, and with particular focus on how they can hold uh, their schools accountable, in particular, and how they can manage and regulate schools, a lot of which which are are not state schools in the sense that we'd think of them, but are run by um, uh, private uh, organisations or by missionary groups.
0: And will that involve lots of travelling?
14: Uh, I, I'm hoping it's not too ridiculous because I do have three small children, but, um, but it will definitely involve some travelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, and final question: um, We're here at the Academy show, which is uh, a big event, it has to be said, and academies uh, in all their different forms and dimensions are being represented and all the services. Just think back to 2010 and just reflect on A, a what you've seen happen, and B, what, what are the lessons for you and what you might have been done differently?
14: Yeah, it's a huge question. Yeah. I mean, I think when I go back, uh, where we started and um we, we, we were working off a system where there were 200 academies and we were thinking maybe there'd be 1,000, 1,500 within five years or so. And here we are in, in 2018 and there are eight 9,000 academies and massive shows like the one we're sitting in at the moment um, taking up a lot of the Excel Centre. Um, so it's grown much faster than I think even we expected um, when, we, when we sort of put the gears in motion on, on allowing um, schools to convert to academy status. Um, and I think um, there, there are some great maths, you know, the organisation I'm about to join is associated with one of the best, ARC, um, doing incredible things. Um, there also have been some mats that have been less successful um, and there isn't, hasn't been enough capacity in the system to grow at the pace that we've grown this system. So if I was going back and starting again, I'd be more deliberate about making sure that um, we, we had a, a, a slower build-up of, 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 of the programme and we were really helping to develop great mats in all parts of the country, building capacity where it was needed, rather than sort of letting um, opening the gate and letting everyone go all at once, which I think has led to a slightly more chaotic process than has been ideal.
0: Do you think that there was a, a, a mistaken decision to kind of politicise Ofsted, in a sense, by saying, right, if a school goes into special measures, academisation is the solution? Academisation was, in the early days the promise of liberation and then suddenly to make it the punishment. Did that kind of change the whole nature of
14: it? So I think the idea, or it's under Labour, the idea was definitely that it would be about transforming and turning around schools that had historically underperformed. And we we kept that whilst also giving schools the chance to... um, to become, to convert to academy status. I think the mistake was making it part of the law So legally, when a school goes into category 4, it has to become an academy. And that I never understood um, because you're tying your own hands. You're saying that there's... that, that You're tying Ofsted's hands and you're tying your own hands as, as a government and saying this is always the right solution. It might well be the right solution in some cases but of course it's not always going to be the right solution. And, and as the government have now found, there are schools that they can't convert even though they are breaking the law because they're not able to convert some schools so I think that kind of um, rigid expectation was a mistake, but I don't think it was an error to see it as a way of of giving schools that had struggled for a long time a new lease of life.
0: And Sam Freeman, thank you. I'm
15: Christine Council, Director of Education, Inspiration Trust.
0: Uh, and before that, you, you were known for something entirely different. Tell us what your previous role was.
15: Um, I worked in teacher training and particularly in history education. Um, and I specialised in teaching history in post-conflict zones, working a lot in Lebanon and in Cyprus, uh, where history teaching is highly contested. Uh, but I also ran a teacher training programme program uh, where my focus was on empowering the mentors in schools so making sure then that the mentors have the same knowledge as the central teacher trainers so that teacher training joins up
0: now in your role now you're you're both talking about but also and training and also writing about the curriculum why is curriculum so important
15: curriculum is there to change the way we are curriculum manipulates what we know um, and we are changed by what we know and if we don't focus on the long-term business of making sure that uh, the knowledge that we have stacks up so that we can do something with it so that we can think flexibly so that we have tools for precise thought if we don't manage that and plan it over time as a narrative um, then children end up with a hollowed out curriculum they end up simply preparing for exams focusing on the surface skills and surface manifestations so we need to look more deeply at what happens in the long term
0: you wrote something last week which is an English teacher I was very struck by which is basically if the child is going to at key stage 4 study romantic poetry if they haven't experienced some aspect of romantic poetry, they've got nothing to compare with. Yes. This is quite a challenge for a teaching profession which has felt itself the deliverers of other people's curricula, isn't it? What, what do we need to do, last, last question, in just in terms of to get that confidence back into teachers and school leaders, that this is your opportunity to define for the generation of young people coming through your doors what they learn. How, how do we build that confidence again?
15: It's a really interesting question as to where you've cut into the circle to try to create that change. For me at the moment, I think that the missing piece of the jigsaw, one missing piece of the jigsaw, is to focus on what I'm calling senior curriculum leadership. Because you can have really good middle leaders who do understand their subject. Um, You can have quite poor middle leaders, perhaps, who haven't benefited from the training or experiences that that one might want. But if you haven't got a senior leadership team who is thinking about curriculum, if you haven't got a senior leadership team who's saying, how do I make the curriculum bigger than some of its parts? Um, If you haven't got a senior leadership team who realises that a generic marking or assessment policy could actively be damaging, then you haven't got that, that tool in the school to make the curriculum do its work, uh, whether it's remediating deficit or using strengths. And, and you really need that, just to go back to your English literature example, if you're going to make the most of all the pieces of the curriculum. So not only do we need children to uh, encounter a lot of romantic poetry, as you say, if they're going to enjoy that particular bit of Wordsworth or that bit of Coleridge, um, and, and we need them to do that because essentially, um, in all subjects, particularly in all subjects, particularly in the humanities and arts we learn by a process of like and unlike how can we comment on what is typical or unusual if we haven't seen other examples and unless we have an accretion of examples we can't tackle things meaningfully Now we need that within subjects but we also need it across subjects so um if you try and read i don't know that lovely cecil day lewis poem that's on uh, i think it's the aqa anthology at the moment about a parting try and understand that without understanding the Holy Trinity, or something that might have been taught in Key Stage 3 RE. Try and understand, it's not just Shakespeare and Dickens that's full of it, but try and understand that beautiful Caroline Duffy poem, War Fog- Photographer, that's in another anthology, without understanding transubstantiation. Completely lost. Well, the English teacher has to you know, take three lessons to go and teach them something else. So is the senior leadership tank saying what are children learning about world religions in years 7, 8 and 9? How does that matter, both own its... Own right, and in terms of how it's going to serve other subjects, and is it being taught thoroughly? And what's the relationship between knowing that stuff and really loving literature? Who's looking at that in a school?
0: Christine Castle, thank you. The Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton.